Well, good morning and welcome back to Christian Life Academy. This morning is the first Sunday of the month, and so we are once again in our systematic theology track, uh, which means that we're looking at our confession of faith at the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, sometimes known as the 1689. Last month, we introduced the idea of systematic theology, talked about what it was, and kind of introduced uh, the history and the background of the confession itself. I want to just re review very briefly our definition of systematic theology. This comes from Louis Burkhoff, who says that systematic theology seeks to give a systematic presentation of all the doctrinal truths of the Christian religion. So we're talking about the Christian faith, the Christian religion, those things that are derived from the scriptures, the Christian Bible, uh, Christian doctrinal truths, the teachings of the Bible summarized for us uh, in a systematic theology and ordered uh, in a particular way, systematized so that they're put in an order that makes a logical sense to us. It's not necessarily the order in which they are revealed over the course of history in the writing of the scriptures. We would learn the doctrines in that way as we study biblical theology, but systematic theology takes them and puts them in an order that makes sense logically. And so we begin with the doctrine of scripture and move on to the doctrine of God and things of that nature. So that's what systematic theology is and that's what our confession of faith is. It's a, a small systematic theology. So this morning, what we're going to do is work our way through uh, the letter to the reader at the beginning of the, the confession. This is the, the preface, or as it is sometimes titled, uh, to the judicial and impartial reader. So this is the, the letter that was affixed to the beginning of the confession to sort of introduce it uh, when it was first published. So we're going to work our way through that, uh, but I want to give you a little bit of background on the letter and the confession itself. Uh, what had happened, we saw last month when we reviewed this, was that in the 1640s, uh, as the Westminster Assembly gathered to meet and begin to try and produce a confession of faith that would serve all of Britain, that was the original goal, uh, was to produce one confession of faith that would kind of unite all of the Protestants in Britain. Didn't work out that way. The Anglican Church, the Church of England, never embraced the Westminster Confession. Uh, the Scottish Presbyterians did, and then others took it and modified it, such as the Savoy Declaration by the Congregationalists, or later our own confession. Uh, but that was the purpose of it. And so when they met to begin doing that, they requested that the particular Baptist churches in London present them with a confession of their faith so that they could consider it. And so in 1643, seven churches in London authorized the publication of what is known as the First London Baptist Confession, presented it to the Westminster Assembly. Uh, we saw the reaction that they had to it uh, last month when we looked at this. So that's in 1643, the early 1640s. The seven churches in London are the, the main uh, particular Baptist churches in England at the time. Around that same time period, uh, they commissioned a man by the name of Thomas Collier uh, to be a sort of missionary, a church planter. They sent him from London up to the northern parts of England to begin to plant particular Baptist churches uh, and to propagate the faith in those uh, more rural regions like that. So Thomas Collier goes uh, to the northern part of England in the mid-1640s and begins to plant churches and pastor them uh, and train other pastors and elders. 
But over the course of time, Collier begins to uh, drift away from uh, what the churches in London considered to be sound teaching. Uh, and so uh, in the course of his pastoral duties and training of other elders, he begins to write. And he's writing uh, basically a systematic theology in order to train men. And so he publishes, in 1670, he publishes a body of divinity, which is basically a systematic theology. The, the churches in London are shocked by what he has written. They consider it heretical. And so they want to respond to it. So they write him letters. That they try and interact with him. Uh, his response is to kind of double down on what he has written. And so he publishes uh, an additional word, basically an appendix or an apology for his body of divinity. And, and he does not re repent. He does not um, recant any of his what they view to be heretical uh, beliefs. So the churches in London, uh, there are more of them than there were in the 1640s, now in the 1670s. The churches in London uh, feel like his beliefs are being propagated because he has published this work publicly. Uh, it's spreading. And others throughout England are beginning to read this, particularly uh, some of the it's not only influencing Baptist churches to embrace wrong doctrine, but Presbyterians are reading this and Congregationalists are reading this and they're making the assumption that this is what the particular Baptists believe. They sent this man out to start churches. He's published this body of divinity. This must be what they all believe. And so the churches in London thought we, we have to uh, make it publicly known. This is not our doctrine. So they speak to Nehemiah Cox. He's the pastor at London's Petty France Church in the Petty France neighborhood of London. He is one of the preeminent particular Baptists in the 1670s. He will uh, also become the main editor and author of our Confession of Faith, along with his co-elder, William Collins. So they, they go to Nehemiah Cox and they ask him to publicly respond to Thomas Collier. He had written letters along with some of the other ministers. Uh, but so in the spring of 1677, Nehemiah Cox publishes a book. It's entitled Vindiciae Veritatis. And then in good Puritan fashion, he affixes a uh, secondary subtitle to it. Or a confutation of the heresies and gross errors asserted by Thomas Collier in his additional word to his body of divinity. Uh, so you can see, Nehemiah Cox does not mince words. Heresies and gross errors, that was how they viewed Collier's work. And so Nehemiah Cox's book was intended to respond to Collier publicly, uh, to rebuke him, but the Baptists felt something more was needed. They felt that they needed to publish a positive confession of what they believed uh, in opposition to Thomas Collier and to show the Presbyterians and Congregationalists and others throughout England that they did not embrace his heresies and gross errors. So later in that same year, in 1677, uh, they published the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, later comes to be known as the 1689 because of the Act of Toleration under William and Mary that allowed the Baptists to publicly uh, confess that, doc that document. So in 1677, uh, the Confession of Faith is published, and this letter to the judicious and impartial reader is affixed to the beginning of it. And we'll see as we work through it that they, they kind of reference the situation. They don't name Collier by name, but you'll see uh, the references here. The, the, 
the letter is really serves as not only an introduction to the confession, but as an apology for it in the sense of apologetics. This is a defense of the doctrines that are contained in it. Uh, it's, it serves uh, to justify or to vindicate the doctrines and the practices of the particular Baptist churches. So I want to read through this. I'm going to stop every so often and make comments. I've got a few quotes I'm going to share with you from other people on some of the issues. But if you have one of these copies available or if you need one, I think we have more in the office. Uh, the, the preface here in the beginning uh, has this letter to the readers. Anybody want this copy before we start so they can follow along? And if we need more, they're, they're in the filing cabinet. We can grab them there in the office. So we'll begin here with the first paragraph, and I'm just going to read. I've got stopping points marked, and then I'll make comments as we go. Courteous reader, it is now many years since diverse of us, with other sober Christians then living and walking in the way of the Lord that we profess, did conceive ourselves to be under a necessity of publishing a confession of our faith. So this is a reference back to 1643 in the first London Baptist Confession. Many years they published the 1643 for the information and satisfaction of those that did not thoroughly understand what our principles were or had entertained prejudices against our profession by reason of the strange representation of them by some men of note who had taken very wrong measures and accordingly led others into misapprehensions of us and them. So that was why they had published the original document in 1643 was to provide information about what they believed and to satisfy uh, those others in England who thought that the particular Baptist maybe shared too much in common with the European continental Anabaptists who had gone heretical in many ways. They continue, and this was first put forth about the year 1643 in the name of seven congregations then gathered in London, since which time diverse impressions thereof have been dispersed abroad and our end proposed in good measure answered inasmuch as many, and some of those men eminent, both for piety and learning, were thereby satisfied that we were no way guilty of those heterodoxies and fundamental errors which had too frequently been charged upon us without ground or occasion given on our part. So you'll recall uh, last month I shared a quote uh, from uh, one of the members of the, the uh, Westminster Assembly uh, who said that uh, the... I can't find it here in my, in my notebook. But he said that after reading the First London Baptist Confession, he said these are tender-hearted Christians who are not heretics. It was clear uh, from their confession. So it, it served its purpose at that time. But then they, they continue here and say, uh, and for as much as that confession is not now commonly to be had. So it's apparently out of print by this point. Uh, it's not readily available. And also that many others have since embraced the same truth which is owned therein. Now this is an important statement and we're going to come back to it in a minute because they're going to repeat it. But this is important. What they're saying is the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, uh, though different and much expanded, and they're going to talk about that, have embraced the same truths. The First London Baptist Confession, much briefer, much more concise but it's not teaching different doctrines than the, the sum of the fundamentals of the faith that are in the Westminster, the Savoy, and ultimately in the 1689. It was judged necessary by us 
to join together in giving a testimony to the world of our firm adhering to those wholesome principles by the publication of this which is now in your hand. So they're publishing a new confession of faith. They're going to join together with the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists testifying to everyone who is curious uh, that they're in agreement with those two bodies of Protestant believers uh, about the wholesome principles of the faith. Now the second paragraph says, And forasmuch as our method and manner of expressing our sentiments in this doth vary from the former, although the substance of the matter is the same, we shall freely impart to you the reason and occasion thereof. Now this again, this is the restatement of what I said was important a minute ago. The manner is different. The, the 1689 is different than the, the 1643 confession. It's much more comprehensive. It's bigger. Uh, it's more detailed. The systematizing is a little different. The order of the doctrines are presented is different. Uh, but they're insisting that the substance of it is the same. This is important for us to know this, that this is what the authors of this confession said because there are churches today that believe that the first London Baptist and the second London Baptist teach different doctrines. There, there is a movement known as New Covenant Theology. Not New Covenant as in the New Covenant, but New Covenant Theology. Uh, and churches that embrace that belief have a tendency to embrace the first London Baptist rather than the second because they'll claim it teaches different doctrine. It doesn't, but it's much more concise and not as thorough, and it doesn't address some things, and so it allows them. They're very antinomian against the law. Um, they're against uh, Sabbath ops, uh, observing the Sabbath and things of that nature. So they, they tend to embrace that confession, thinking, well, it teaches something different than the Second London. But the authors of the Second London Confession are saying, no, it doesn't. It teaches the same substance of doctrine. It's just that this new confession is more comprehensive. So they go on and they say, one thing that greatly prevailed with us to undertake this work was not only to give a full account of ourselves to those Christians that differ from us about the subject of baptism. So here's the first reason for publishing this new confession. They want to give a full account of what differs between the Baptists and the Congregationalists, the Baptists and the Presbyterians, the ones that we disagree with on the subject of baptism. They want to explain that fully. And then secondly, they say, but also the prophet that might from thence arise unto those that have any account of our labors. Now, what they're talking about here is the members of the churches in the particular Baptist churches throughout England, uh, would, it would profit them to have a confession of faith that outlined what the churches believed. So you can see partly this is to state their agreement with the other bodies, partly it's to distinguish themselves, and partly there's a pastoral concern for their own church members here, that this will be beneficial for our church members to have this statement of faith. It goes on to say that in their, this is how it's going to be beneficial to the members of the Baptist churches in their instruction and establishment in the great truths of the gospel. So the confession of faith is going to serve as a means of instructing the members of the church in the truths of the gospel, to establish them in those truths. And then they, they go on and point out four ways that it does this. In the clear understanding and steady belief of which our comfortable walking with God and fruitfulness before him in all our ways is most nearly concerned. So you can see that They've got two things in mind. We need to have a clear understanding of gospel truth. We need to have a, a steadfast belief in it, not wavering. 
And that is going to influence how we live our lives, how we walk with God uh, and our fruitfulness before him. So if we want to have fruitful Christian lives, we need to start with a clear understanding of gospel truth. And so that's, that's their concern with uh, publishing this new confession, right? So the purpose of publishing the confession is not to point the finger at other believers who disagree with us and go, well, you don't agree with us, so you're outside the camp. Like, that's not the purpose of the confession. The purpose of the confession is to assure other believers who disagree with us that we're not heretics. Here's what we believe, and it's biblical. It's also to teach our members and to instruct us in the faith so that we can live fruitful Christian lives. So you can see the pastoral purposes of publishing the confession. Then they continue and say, and therefore we did conclude it necessary to express ourselves more fully and distinctly. So again, more fully. This is a bigger confession. It's longer than the first one. And also to fix on such a method as might be most comprehensive of those things which we design to explain our sense and belief of. So again, more comprehensive. And finding no defect in this regard and that fixed on by the assembly, meaning the Westminster Assembly, and after them by those of the Congregational Way, meaning the Savoy Declaration, we did readily conclude it best to retain the same order in our present confession. So what they're saying is, then they're going to point out the differences, the distinctions between uh, what we believe and what the Westminster Assembly settled on, but they're saying the comprehensiveness of it and the, the structure of it, the way the doctrines were ordered, they found no defect in it. They said, hey, we like this. It's good. It's better than what we had before because it's more comprehensive. The, the arrangement of these doctrines is good, so we're going to use it. We're just going to take it and modify it to show our distinctives, but we're going to use what was done by other learned men. And also, when we observed that those last mentioned, that would be the Congregationalists, did in their confession, for reasons which seemed of weight both to themselves and others, choose not only to express their mind in words concurrent with the former, that is, with the Westminster, in sense, concerning all those articles wherein they were agreed. So in other words, they're learning from the example of the Congregationalists. The Westminster pub, uh, Confession has been published. The Anglican Church rejected it, but the Scottish Presbyterian Church adopted it. And the Congregationalists went, hey, that's pretty good. We might differ in a few things, but instead of just reinventing the wheel, we'll take what they did and just modify it. And so the Baptists are saying, we're learning from their example. Instead of starting over, we're going to take what's good about this and just change the things that we have to. So they go on, but also, for the most part, without any variation of the terms, we did, in like manner, conclude it best to follow their example, making use of the very same words with them both. In these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine is the same as theirs, and this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world." So they're making the point here that uh, this is nothing new. Uh, and remember the 1643 Baptist Confession had largely been uh, a modified version of the true confession made by those Baptists who were in the Netherlands at the time. Uh, and so they're not inventing new things. They're taking what is good and other things and trying to express their consent and their agreement with other Protestant Christians. 
on behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities so around the world, and also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words. So again, that they're not wanting to just make up new things, new doctrines. They're not wanting to come up with their own distinct terms. Anywhere we can use the same terms, the same theological words that other people are using and mean the same thing by them, we're going to do that so that we don't cause additional confusion. But we do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. Now this is the first obvious reference we see to a biblical text. Uh, and this is a reference to 1 Timothy, 3, uh, 1 Timothy 1, 13. This is where Paul instructs Timothy to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the original King James says hold fast the form of sound words. And so that's the phrase that they use here, that form of sound words. And so what they're saying is, a confession of faith like this is a biblical practice. This is what Tim, Paul instructed Timothy to do, to have a summary of the faith that you can pass on to others, that you can hold to and say, this is what we believe the scriptures teach. And so that's what they're attempting to do. The next phrase is very interesting. They say, hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which with so clear evidence of scriptures they have asserted. So it's interesting that they, they are professing this, declaring it before God, angels, and men. It seems that they have a, a clear sense of uh, the, the spiritual uh, realm, the, the spiritual battle that is going on around them during the Reformation. And if you'll remember in Peter's first letter, he says in, in 1 Peter 1.12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Uh, the angels desire to look into the gospel, to these truths of the gospel that they mentioned in the first paragraph. Uh, the angels have no experience of forgiveness and mercy and compassion from God the way we do. Uh, and so they're fascinated by it. They long to look into it. Uh, and so the, the Baptists are aware that the angels are watching. The angels are interested in the gospel that we are agreeing with other Protestants on. And then they, they are open and honest about the changes they have made. Some things indeed are in some places added, some terms omitted, and some few changed. But these alterations are of that nature as that we need not doubt any change or charge or suspicion of unsoundness in the faith from any of our brethren upon the account of them. So there are areas of distinction where they changed some of the terms, dropped some of the terms, added something, but they're saying we're confident that if our Presbyterian brothers and sisters examine what we have written, that they're not going to come back and find that we're heretics. They're just going to see that we have some differences, but they're sincerely held, biblically developed differences. We're not uh, professing heretical ideas here. The next paragraph addresses uh, the differences. It says, in those things wherein we differ from others, we have expressed ourselves with all candor and plainness, that none might entertain jealousy of aught secretly lodged in our breasts, that we would not the world should be acquainted with. Yet we hope 
we have also observed those rules of modesty and humility as will render our freedom in this respect inoffensive, even to those whose sentiments are different from ours. So, yeah, they differ from the Westminster and the Savoy, uh, but they're trying to be as open and honest as they can about the things they believe. They don't want anyone to think that they're secretly hiding uh, heretical beliefs. They're publishing what they believe publicly so it can be examined. Uh, I meant to, and I totally forgot, uh, to bring a book that I was going to read a couple of quotes to you from, uh, a book by Carl Truman, who's a Presbyterian, on, uh, called The Creedal Imperative, about the importance of creeds and confessions. And I had a couple of quotes I wanted to read to you, and one of them in this area, I'll just try and summarize what he said, was that every church has a confession of faith. Some of them write it down and publish it so that it can be examined by Scripture and that they can be held accountable for what they believe. Other churches that say, well, we have no creed but Christ and you know, no confession but the Bible, he says, well, you have a confession of faith. You have things that you believe that the Bible teaches about God, about salvation. But if you've not written them down, then they can't be examined. You can change them at will. Uh, it's hard to pin you down. It's hard to say, well, this, is this what you believe? Is that true? Um, and so every church has a confession of faith. Some are honest enough to write it down and say, this is what we believe. Examine it by Scripture. Hold us accountable to it. Others are not willing to do that. Some, out of sincerity, just trying to be biblical, um, but it's a little bit wrong-headed and kind of unbiblical on the basis of uh, what these authors uh, have referenced in Second Timothy that the scriptures themselves teach us uh, to hold to a form of sound words. And, and they go on to talk about this in the next paragraph. They say, we have also taken care to affix texts of scripture in the margin for the confirmation of each article in our confession. So they've affixed the footnotes with the scripture text, the references that we can look at, uh, in which work we have studiously endeavored to select such as are most clear and pertinent for the proof of what is asserted by us. Now, what we can get out of this little phrase is that the, what they're saying is these are not all the scripture references. These are simply the most pertinent, the most clear ones. We couldn't give you a comprehensive a list of references for each one of these doctrines that are taught, but we've tried to give you the clearest ones so that you could further study it out. And so that's what, that's what they say. And our earnest desire is that all into whose hands this may come would follow that never enough commended example of the noble Bereans who searched the scriptures daily that they might find out whether the thing preached to them were so or not. And so they're welcoming examination of the confession. Open your Bible, read the confession with your Bible open next to it, examine what it's saying, look up those references, follow your cross-references, read the whole scriptures, and see whether or not these things are true. And what they're referencing here is that passage in Acts chapter 10, or no, Acts chapter 17, and I'll just read it to you briefly. Uh, Paul ends up leaving uh, Thessalonica because of persecution and he ends up in Berea and it says this, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. 
Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So they went and searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was teaching them was in fact biblical, if it was true. And that's what the authors of the confession are saying, is search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And they continue, there is one more thing which we sincerely profess and earnestly desire credence in. Visa, that contention is most remote, that contention is most remote from our design and all that we have done in this matter. In other words, they're not looking for an argument. They didn't publish this just to try and point out where they think the Presbyterians are wrong. Right? They're not trying to stir up theological controversy. They don't want contention. They say, and we hope the liberty of an ingenious unfolding our principles and opening our hearts unto our brethren with the scripture grounds on which our faith and practice leans will by none of them be either denied to us or taken ill from us. And so they're saying we hope that uh, other Christians who read this won't deny us the right to express what we believe from the scriptures and we hope that they won't take offense at this and think that we're simply trying to uh, point out their errors. We're not. We're simply trying to positively state what we believe. Our whole design is accomplished if we may obtain that justice as to be measured in our principles and practice and the judgment of both by others according to what we have published. In other words, judge us by this confession. We stand by it. This is what we believe the scriptures teach. Don't judge us by rumors. Don't judge us by Thomas Collier or what other people have said we believe. Judge us by what we have published and said this is what we believe the scriptures teach. Which the Lord, whose eyes are as a flame of fire, knoweth to be the doctrine which with our hearts we most firmly believe and sincerely endeavor to conform our lives to. And so again, we can see a pastoral concern here. This is a matter of conforming our lives to what the scripture teaches, not simply uh, having uh, some sort of intellectual or scholastic uh, systematic of the faith. But this is intended for to change our lives and how we live. And oh, that other contentions being laid asleep, the only care and contention of all upon whom the name of our blessed Redeemer is called might for the future be to walk humbly with their God and in the exercise of all love and meekness toward each other to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, each one endeavoring to have his conversation such as becometh the gospel. And so this is what they desire for themselves, the members of their churches, and even for their brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian and the Congregational churches. Walk humbly before God, love each other, uh, and, and allow each other the freedom of Christian liberty to express what we believe uh, and to actually live it out. Then they go on and say, and also suitable to his place and capacity vigorously to promote in others the practice of true religion and undefiled in the sight of God and our Father. And so far from using the confession to condemn other believers, they want to use it to build up the faith and the life of the members of their churches and hope that by doing so that we can promote in others the practice of true biblical faith and religion uh, rather than condemning them because they disagree with us in certain things. And that in this backsliding day, and I laugh when I read that and think, what would they think of our day? In this backsliding day, we might not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evils of others. Wow. They don't want to spend their days complaining about where others are wrong. But 
May everyone begin at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and ways. Uh, this is wonderfully pastoral language and completely applicable to our own lives. We each need to begin in our own heart rather than complaining about others and where they might be wrong. We have to start with our own hearts. And then to quicken all that we may have influence upon to the same work. Our, our job is not to condemn others, but rather to stir them up that they would begin to reform their own heart. That if the will of God were so, none might deceive themselves by resting in and trusting to a form of godliness without the power of it, an inward experience of the efficacy of those truths that are professed by them. So we don't want just empty religion. We don't want to just profess religion and not actually have it change the way we live our lives, change our hearts. And so you can see that their goal in the publication of the confession is very pastoral. It's, it's the goal of uh, genuine faith and practice among the members of the churches and also more broadly, uh, all the Protestants in England at the time. Then they, they continue here. We're near the end. Uh, and verily, there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day, which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a redress of. And so they're saying the Christian faith, this is in the 1670s in England. This is really the high water mark of the Reformation in England. And they're saying Christian religion has begun to decay. And they think that they've put their finger on the cause of it. And so here it is. That is the neglect of the worship of God in families. Family worship. The neglect of family worship is the cause of the decay of religion in the nation. Right? It starts in the home. It starts with the fathers leading their families. By those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. So that the husbands, the fathers, have neglected to lead their families in worship in the home. And this is causing... Uh, the broader culture to move away from the Christian faith. So then they say here, um, may not the gross ignorance and instability of many with the profaneness of others be justly charged upon their parents and masters. And so those who are ignorant of the Christian faith, those who are unstable, tossed every which way by every wind of doctrine, those who are profane, who have completely walked away from the Christian faith and are living ungodly lives, this can all be justly charged to their parents and masters. Now, when we read the word masters, we have to be cautious about what that means. They're not talking about slavery. Uh, James Renahan, in his commentary on the confession, says this. He says that masters refers to master tradesmen with apprentices under their supervision. It was expected at that time that masters would train their pupils in more than just their trade, using the close relationship as a means to inculcate the Christian faith in the young people under their care. So if you sent your uh, young son off to be trained in a, in a trade, and a skill, you expected that the tradesman who was training him didn't just teach him to, to lay bricks, but that he also taught him the Christian faith. He taught him how to live as a Christian man, maybe even taught him with a catechism while they were eating lunch or whatever the case may be. So fathers and masters, when you have influence over those who are under you, especially the young, you have a responsibility to train them. And so he, they, they say, who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord hath laid upon them, so to catechize and instruct them, that their tender years might be, and I just 
I love this phrase, seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God. What a wonderful uh, phrase. What a wonderful testimony that would be for our children and our grandchildren if their younger years, their tender years, were seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the scriptures. And also, by their own omission of prayer and by their own, he's talking about the parents and the tradesmen, the master tradesmen, have omitted to pray and other duties of religions in their families. They've neglected it together with the ill example of their loose conversation. So not only have they neglected family worship, omitted prayer in their own lives, they've set a bad example for those young people who are under their care, have inured them first to a neglect and then contempt of all piety and religion. We know this will not excuse the blindness or wickedness of any, Right? Every individual is responsible before God for themselves, but certainly it will fall heavy upon those who have thus been the occasion thereof. So those who are in a position of authority have a responsibility to those under their care. They indeed die in their sins, but will not their blood be required of those under whose care they were, who yet permitted them to go on without warning, yea, led them into the paths of destruction." And will not the diligence of Christians with respect to the discharge of these duties in ages past rise up in judgment against and condemn many of those who would be esteemed such now? In other words, previous generations of the church are going to rise up and testify against the current generation for their neglect of their duties of Christian family worship and prayer in the home. And then they conclude with this final paragraph, we shall conclude with our earnest prayer that the God of all grace will pour out those measures of his Holy Spirit upon us that the profession of truth may be accompanied with the sound belief and diligent practice of it by us. So this is their, again, their pastoral concern. The purpose of the confession is that we would have sound belief and diligent practice. Not just right belief uh, and not just trying to have the right practice without knowing what it is we're practicing. You have to have both sound belief and diligent practice. And here's the ultimate reason, that his name may in all things be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the glory of God in Christ is the ultimate goal, and that is worked out uh, in the belief and the practice of the churches and the individual members of those churches. And that is the purpose of the confession, is to teach us and to train us Uh, these gospel truths that we are to believe and that we are to live in obedience to. Uh, So next month we'll begin looking at chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures. But Let's close this morning in a word of prayer.